Hello, and welcome to Getting It. The conversation where we try to understand life just that little bit more. My name's Dan. And my name is Saban. We're both medical students based in London. And in this episode, we have a very British rant about the weather. Dan discusses his plans to buy property in Portugal, and we make some reflections on a book called The Story of Human Language. Good afternoon, Saban. Good afternoon, Dan. How are you doing on this uh, summer afternoon? I mean, it's quite rainy, so mm. not very summery, unfortunately. Yeah, but, it's quite sad, eh? Yeah, it's made me sad. <laughs> like, it's it's actually like when it, this morning, it was really dark, just compared to the previous like mornings over the past week, which is really dark and gloomy. So I actually had to turn the light on to fit for there to be enough light. And it, I, was just, I just felt sad. I was like, man, this is sad to not have it's enough It's a very light British thing to obviously be talking about the weather, but... Honestly, I just want to say, is it just me or this summer has been like not very good? Has there even been a summer? We had a one week or like two week summer. There was a weird heat wave in, what was it, April or May or something? Yeah. And then one, a couple of weeks ago, around a month ago, where it was just hot for two weeks or a week and a half. And then since then, it's just been raining on and off. And it's not really been that cold. The temperature has actually been pretty decent, although not like hot which I actually prefer it to be slightly cooler, but it's just raining, cloudy, on and off. It's so hard to predict the weather. Even the forecasts are so bad. Um, it's to the point where I, I followed like the cloud formations now to see where the rain's actually going to be because um, I was informed pretty, pretty recently that, you know, when it says, oh, there's 60% chance of precipitation within your mm. area, that means, or it's not 60% chance, it's just that there's going to be precipitation over 60% of the area that you are currently looking at. So that 60% might not include my specific area that I am interested in. Uh, mostly when I'm like going back and forth to uni because riding a motorbike, weather plays a big role. So I'm always constantly just checking the weather forecast to see like, oh, what should I wear? Should I like, should I just wait it out so I can pass the rain or whatever, find a window? So I'm literally like, at, like looking at the path of the clouds and stuff, seeing where they're predicted to go to see where there's going to be rain. And yeah, they will literally change the forecast every hour, but they won't change it like, oh, okay, it's going to be slightly less rain or something. It will just be, yeah, it's actually just going to be sunny now. Or it's, they said it was going to be sunny. Now it's going to be pouring down over the next hour when two hours ago it said it's just going to be sunny. And it's really irritating. I'm like, come on, man, just give me some reliability so I can plan my day in advance. I learned that from tennis when I was uh, playing a lot of tennis. The weather forecast obviously really matters yeah. as well. But I didn't know that fact about... Um, the precipitation coverage for a given area. That is pretty interesting. Yeah, that's that's what someone told me. So, I mean, they're generally a good source, but they did get it from a, another source. So there might be a, like a series of Chinese whispers occurring. So who knows? But okay. yeah, so the best way to actually check it. So what I do now is I go on Met Office where I'd usually check the weather. But then if you scroll down, you can see the like detailed observations and you can go hour by hour and see how the clouds or like how the rain clouds are going to move across and stuff. So sometimes you'll be able to find the the windows of opportunity mm. to like go from one place to another. Okay, that yeah, that, I will. I, I mean, to be honest, living in a city, I find that the weather doesn't matter as much because a lot of the time I'm indoors. It only really matters for me with sport and with football. It doesn't matter playing football in the rain. Mm. So it's just it's just when I'm playing tennis really that the weather matters for me. Um, yeah, yeah, and also a final point on it is that. I don't really mind rain, so I, I guess it's because I'm not wearing, I'm not riding a motorbike or anything. I'm just walking in it, so I don't care. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't find that I check it very often these days. 
I'm just sad that the weather's a bit nasty, eh? Especially after <laughs> yeah. coming back from Portugal, where it's oh, just yeah, warm every yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, How was Portugal? Very good, thank you. So this is the idea I was going to ask you about, and I said I need your help for in three years' time. Yeah, um, I did note that down on my calendar. I did. I thought it was quite funny. I, I showed my mum the the thread. She she found it really funny. It's um just to give context, um because we are recording. Um, uh, I messaged you like on Sunday, maybe saying like, uh, oh, I I need I'm going to need your help in about three years' time, <laughs> and uh, but there was no further clarification. But you were just like. Come, come. And then I was like, um, should we pencil in 24th of June? And then yeah. you sent me a screenshot of your calendar and it just says like 24th of June, 1 to 4 p.m. Help Dan. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> so it's in the calendar, but I want to give you a bit of context surrounding it because it's really interesting. So um, I can start to prepare to help you in exactly. three years. Mm. I'm not joking. Th this is called forward thinking. This is this the is, ultimate type of forward thinking. Yeah, I need to book you in ASAP. So... Um, it's a bit. It would be. A, it would be a big project. I don't know if you'd be interested, but basically, um, my my family live. Well, they come from a nice region in Portugal. It's by the river Douro, which is in the north. And you know Porto, the city. That's the mouth of the Douro, and the Douro goes from Porto, which, if you imagine like Iberia, um, just Spain and Portugal. I don't know if you know where Porto is. It's basically it's on the west side of Iberia, and about about halfway up. Okay, and that's where the Douro opens up into the sea. But you can trace the Douro's path through Portugal directly eastwards until you get to the Spanish border. Okay, oh, and it goes straight through. It goes basically straight through. Yeah, I mean, it's so a river, so obviously is the origin in Spain. The origin is in Spain, and it okay. flows through like midwestern Spain, and then goes opens up into Portugal, and then ends up in Porto. That's you know why the, that's where the city Porto originated, and it's a really beautiful river honestly i'm not just saying that out of bias because for example you know um port wine i don't know if you've heard of port wine it's i, I don't drink wine personally but um, neither do port, i no <laughs> so we're not the best source of um knowledge on this but port wine is a famous type of wine okay. and it comes from it comes that's what that's it comes from porto and the the that river the river Douro as well so the, like the best port wine comes from this exact region it's the valleys around this, this river and so for people who really are into wine, there is a, like a group of people in the world who love wine. It's a really nice place to go to, to just basically drink some really nice wine, look at the vineyards and how it's all grown. And in the summer, the weather's lovely and you've got the river and it's, it's beautiful, actually. It flows through. It's quite a mountainous terrain. And um, my family in Portugal have lived in that area for hundreds of years. Uh, they actually came down from Galicia in, in just north in Spain and then came down to the, mm. these, these, like this area around the river. And they owned a really lovely house and it's quite big, maybe like, I don't know, five or six bedrooms and it's a big space. And then there's like a courtyard and there's a second building as well. And the second building has like, it, it had a downstairs where they'd have cows and stuff. And then the upstairs, I think, for more living quarters, maybe for the workers and stuff. And then... Um, so those are on either side of the courtyard where you'd have like tractors and stuff. And, and um, then there was a, in the back, there was like a, a plot of land where they'd grow like grapes and other fruits and like a bunch of trees. And it was quite a big piece of land and really lovely. But sadly, it's seen its heyday. That was the place where my granddad, my granddad was born in that house. Mm. And um, all his family, he all, they all grew up in that exact house in the small village called Pasuj. And... 
it's sad because for about 15 or 20 years now, no one's lived there. And so it's become derelict pretty much. Every year that passes, it becomes more and more derelict. Mm. And the house is sort of just decomposing almost. You know, like the the, the second yeah. building, the smaller one where the cows would live and stuff, half of that has just collapsed. And the main house is not livable now, I'd say. And so it's it's for sale, but no one's really looking to buy it anytime soon. And so what I thought is, hold on, I could buy it. And mm. with a couple of years of us working, because it's it's a lovely piece of land, but it's so um, not livable, that it's uninhabitable, I think that's the word, mm. um, that it's a very reasonable price, actually. So I was thinking, I could I could buy this and try and renovate it. And that would be just an amazing like project for me. And I thought, if I were to do that, I might value your opinion and you may be able to like chip in with some ideas because it's something I'm not very good at. And yeah, I don't know. Like it would be a massive project. I, I don't underestimate yeah. that. Like I appreciate that it would be ultimately years of planning, years of work and investment. And like, you know, I, I don't, I don't uh, doubt that, but I thought one, I think my granddad would love that. Like it would be amazing for him to see, you know, that place that means so much to him. That's that's so sad for him to go to now and see it be like you know lovely again. Keep it in the family, and it's a lovely place, you know. Like it's so rural, um, and I'd just love to have that house be a really nice place to spend time. And in the future, I always want to retain my Portuguese side of my family, like that part of my heritage. So yeah, this would be like a really nice thing for me. So that's a bit of a dream at the moment. And I thought, you know, in that that what was it twenty fourth of June. We need to uh, convene and, and uh, share some ideas do some little planning see what you think as well yeah. yeah so in the meantime basically start saving money over the next three years <laughs> yes but that's part of the uh, plan for, for junior doctor for me i'll graduate next year if i'm careful with where i live you know I, I, hopefully i could even live at home with my um with my mum potentially and then rent isn't a problem because obviously living mm. in london is extortionate yeah so expensive so yeah um i'm basically just unraveling the like three or four year plan right now but yeah that that's uh, yeah. something that's that i've been thinking about oh what about your five and ten year plan then <laughs> a five and, and ten year plan oh, that's oh okay we, go ahead that's when we start to bring in china and brazil oh, oh god <laughs> fine and then just slowly every single country yeah argentina next but yeah yeah so this this brings up a few thoughts in my mind the first thing just being that kind of really shows the importance of family in the fact that without family, just certain things will just kind of disappear, if that makes sense. People will say who don't have kids, after them, they just, unless they were some really famous person, they just kind of, I, I don't know how to phrase it, but like, you know, die off, essentially. Yeah. Like, there's no memory or any passing down of them. So that happened recently. Someone in my neighborhood in Bournemouth recently passed away, but... Um, she 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 was quite elderly so was her husband and but then her husband was also in like not a good place in terms of health um same thing with like uh like a, a single son as well who was also had some disabilities so then they basically just had to sell the house uh, or as in they didn't sell the council came and just took the house oh. and like auctioned it off and they're oh, doing man. that kind of stuff so that was just a side i just never really imagined because it just never come into my head because you know, it's inevitable that, you know, something's going to happen like that for everyone. Uh, parents pass away, you know, sometimes children can pass away first, but, you know, the the normal course of life, it would usually just go down to the kids, but it just kind of stopped. 
it was just blocked because it just couldn't at that point. So it's weird how it's weird how things just kind of happen at that point. And without family, things just don't get continued down. So it's a it's an interesting thing to think about. And then I suppose the other thing is, I suppose there's business business side to stuff to consider in terms of taking an endeavor like that on. I don't really have I don't have any experience at all in terms of property and that kind that's type of investment. But, but you I suppose will. Well, hopefully soon, who knows? But um, yeah, I suppose a few things to consider is what would be your intention for a place like that? So you'd own that place and, you know, I'm assuming like the surrounding land and the land that's associated with that place. Would that be just for your own ownership in terms of like as a family home or family, uh, not family home, but like a holiday home kind of thing where you can just go whenever you want and obviously relatives being able to live there and stuff? Or do you want to, rake some kind of income from there uh, or like you know rent it out make it like an airbnb but then i suppose there's other things where okay if there's good associated land and like you were saying different certain businesses come from that area with the wines and that kind of stuff so i'm assuming it has quite good fertile land around it you know get into certain exports or something so there, there's a there's a interesting you can do multiple things with it for it to be a successful endeavor not that it has to be a successful endeavor in terms of making some kind of passive income as they like to call it but usually it'd be nice to have that on the side with it instead of it you just buy it and it just kind of stays there as an asset that doesn't really do much for you so yeah what what are your thoughts in terms of what you have planned for it after like renovating it and you know just for your granddad it'd just be very nice to see that place like come back to life so good question I've thought about it a little bit. I think the the good thing is that it's there are two buildings within the same property and mm. they're separated by like a court, a small courtyard area. And mm. so you've essentially got and both buildings are like two stories like I think that you could make something out of that second building, the smaller one, and convert that into like a like a small Airbnb sort of situation yeah it is a, a really nice location in portugal as well like in the summer especially the weather's lovely and it's i mean it's actually like a unesco world heritage site the alto duro the um interesting that whole region because because of the the history it has associated with winemaking and stuff and so i think i can imagine if you advertised it well that it could definitely be an interesting place for people to want to go to it, it sounds very disconnected from cities and stuff like that very much so very much yeah. so the village the village has a, 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 like a few hundred people in it and it's really not like i don't know that the, the, it's not advanced in a nice mm. way yeah so would it be a very so how far is it from like say the nearest airport nearest international airport is about an hour and an hour drive oh that's that's not that bad it's not Maybe an hour and 20 minutes, maybe. So but, I'd suppose it'd be more like a thing where someone would just want an isolated getaway. You know, like exactly. people in the whole, you know, productivity kind of thing will just take that week off where they'll go into some cabin in the woods, zip, no internet, mm. no nothing, just completely isolate and become one with nature again, essentially just go yes. for a big reset. So it, it could be very good and hold a lot of attraction for that kind of side of things. But otherwise, I suppose in terms of it being more... Yeah, like a touristy attraction, probably not so much. Unless, I mean, I haven't been to that area. I don't know what it's like. Like, what's there to do around there and stuff apart from good weather and fresh air? There's there's some good history in that part of the in that part of Portugal, and there is definitely 
like a, a cause for people to want to come there. I think. <laughs> okay, I am recording. So we are. Uh, we had a slight technical difficulty. Yep. Unfortunately, um, my recorder ran out of battery, even though it, it was saying full battery when we started. And then it just dropped to two. And I was like, yeah, okay, drop to two. You know, it will be fine for like six hours or something. And then next thing I know, it just turned off saying there was critically low power. So, yeah. Do you think it was a temperature thing? No, 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 it's definitely not a temperature thing. It's not overheating. It's, it's cool and everything. It's just, I think the battery sensor thing is just weird because I've put special like lithium ion batteries instead of, you, you know, the standard AA batteries. I've got like special rechargeable ones. Maybe you just can't read the battery level that well. So I had to resort to recording on my phone. I didn't even have another cable to plug the microphone into a laptop or anything. So apologies for the quite drastic drop in audio quality on my end. Anyway, Dan, let's continue. Well, this gives me more of an excuse to talk, which is amazing. I don't need a second invitation. Nice. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> um, we were talking about the the property in New Ze in um, Portugal, not New Zealand, and um, like you asked me about what I think like could be done with it, basically. Yeah, or what your intention and I was, gonna was say, behind it. I I don't know much about this stuff, but obviously it's, it would be amazing to have an asset and to be able to get a passive income from it would be incredible as well. And I the most obvious thing that could be done with it, in my opinion, would be turning that second building into an Airbnb sort of situation of somewhere where tourists can go to and rent. And then I would still be able to have the main house for the family. You know, my mum can have somewhere in Portugal to go to as she gets older. And yeah, we like could still have that holiday home. It's just that we've got that space there for people to come to as well. But I don't know anything about this sort of thing. So maybe there is another option of something we could do with the property that I don't know about. I mean, one thing I would really like to do would be to use some of the space in the back. It's a bit blasphemous, but to, to convert it into a tennis court and a mini football pitch, that would right, be so fun for me. Like, man, I want an indoor basketball court, even or even just a nice oh. outdoor one, like a proper nice outdoor one. But, but, you know, then the wind will mess up my shot. So I need an indoor one. So, <laughs> yeah, that's like one of my life goals basically. But it's just impossible to do that in London because there's not enough space. So, yeah. And we haven't got the I money. I just have to do it in Portugal but then. So one, one thing then is, is like property booming. Uh, so I'm clueless in terms of property in the UK and stuff like that land. What about Portugal? And I'm even more clueless about Portugal in terms of the rules and laws and everything like that. But then what about the property market and stuff like land in Portugal in general? Do you have any idea of that landscape? No, unfortunately I haven't. I'll be worse than you because I don't know anything about property at all. It's just that when I was there, I, I just thought about this. I thought it's sad that this property is like not going anywhere and it was so special and there's so much space and stuff that could be done with it. It just needs someone to like roll their sleeves up and invest time and money into it. And while I'm young, it would be amazing to do that and be able to say by 30 years old, have a second like i have my own place in portugal i think that would just be lovely so yeah i don't know what i would be allowed to do and what i wouldn't be allowed to do the only thing i would say because portugal is quite bureaucratic when it comes to getting planning permission and stuff with the two main buildings i don't know if this is a too simplistic way to look at it but those buildings have already been built i'm not proposing to like 
construct anything new. Obviously, the football pitch tennis court <laughs> thing would be in the garden of that. That uh, that's like a like a small thought. Like that's an afterthought in the co- in the prospect of like the whole property. Um, the main thing would be renovating the main house and the second building. But as I said, I wouldn't be planning on changing the footprint of the building or the height of the building or building out in any way. I suppose that may happen to a small degree, but I imagine that I wouldn't need too much planning permission if if not if the actual dimensions are not changing. All I want to do is just do the flooring, change the roofing probably, and reinstall the piping and like yeah. And it's a big job. It's a huge job. But I my understanding of planning permission is more like you you want to build a conservatory in the back of your house and the council needs to figure out whether that's a safe thing for you to do. And like whether there's enough space and whether that would get in the neighbor's way and like that sort of thing. Whereas this, yeah, is more like, can I redo my flooring and <laughs> yeah. can I put in new windows and stuff? Yeah, as in, again, it's going to depend on the regulations within Portugal. It's likely to be very different to the UK. So, yeah, I, I just have no comment on that, basically. I have no idea. But it would be fun, though, eh? Like, it would be cool to just sit there and look at the property and try and plan how to make something cool out of it. You know, as long as there's enough money and like time that can be invested into it. So, yeah, that's the three year uh, plan where I need your help. And, you know, we don't have to have any talks soon, but I will be using your brain power at some point to hopefully give me some ideas. Sounds good. Okay, so that's that. That's the chapter on Portugal done. It was really nice as well, just spending time there. And I got my Portuguese passport. Got my. Oh, wow, that looks kind of sassy. Still got the, yeah, yeah, it's nice. Yeah, hey. It's got the you know nice EU color. What's the color? It's blue, isn't it? The British ones. My brother just got a new one, and it's black. Oh, it's black. So, oh. yeah, it suits my aesthetics. So. Man, why do we have to do that? Sorry, I'm just talking about Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the the EU passport is so nice. It's so nice to like own. I don't know to think like oh you know it'd be a lot easier now to work in Europe and to be able to travel between European countries although I I don't know enough about the laws like around Brexit and what things have actually changed but I don't know it's just nice to know now you know that 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 is there and I imagine if I do want to spend more time in Portugal having that Portuguese documentation is just a good idea so yeah nice do you have a Pakistani passport as well not a passport but I have an identity card so I, I don't know, the system there is a bit messed up. So when I go to the airport and stuff and I like land in Pakistan, I show my identity card alongside my British passport, but I'm like a Pakistani citizen, basically. So it's a bit weird. I don't probably know how it works, but there is that. At the airport, do they speak in to you in English or in Urdu? In Yeah, in... Actually, that's a very good question. I can't really remember what happened last time. I don't think anyone spoke to me at the airport. They just kind of... You go up to the desk, just look at you, just take your thing and just hand it back. That's it. But the, I remember the signs are in Urdu and in English. So, yeah. And, but I think they actually have a separate column just for like British citizens as well. So it would just be like the rest of the world and then British citizens. If I remember correctly, I might be completely wrong. Uh, and yeah, that was at Lahore Airport. So, um, oh, no, no. It was actually Festival Airport. That was, that was the one I went to. Awesome. I can't remember. My memory's gone. I suppose I just kind of deleted that period of my life just out of my brain when you go to when you go to pakistan do you fly to lahore then normally yeah usually because it takes more bigger international flights and stuff lahore's in punjab region right yes now you're stretching my my map knowing abilities at this point (laughs) my geography so 
But yeah, I think so. I think you'd still class as Punjabia. Fair. And then, so, but your family are from Faisalabad? Yeah. Okay. And how far is that from Lahore, roughly? Like, when you drive, is it like a long drive? Or? It's around two hours, one hour, 45-ish. So similar distance oh, from Bournemouth to London. Oh, it's not bad at all. Yeah. But over the past few years, they've made the roads a lot better because before, you know, the roads just weren't as good. But yeah, now, now it's, a, it's a lot more comfortable to get there. Okay, cool. Well, now I know that you got that double identity, like yeah, identity card, passport situation. When I was getting my Chinese visa, that was a big issue, you know, like I, I had to get properly questioned about it. And even when I was at China, like when I landed in the airport, they, they, they were just kind of shook. They were, ju- they were just confused. They were like, what is this as well? Do Wait, so what to- did you show? I need to just show them everything. Did you have to though? Or could you not just show your British they, passport? They asked for it. And then because they also asked for you know, the whole visa, the education visa and everything I was going for. But when I was getting the visa in the first place in the UK, when I went to the embassy and stuff, I had to give them all of them. I had to like, then they called me back asking for more details about it. And then I had to send them more documentations and stuff. Yeah, I had to do that, you know, booky thing where they, they asked me to take a picture, like sign the date, sign a piece of paper with the date and my name, put the ID card next to it and take a picture to like, show proof because they they didn't get it when I went there and it was only after the after I went to the embassy they were like oh we actually need this as well so yeah and then when I went to Pakistan the same year like a few months after because the visa came back in my passport so it looks like almost a separate passport page in in my in my passport instead of your the proper passport page with all your details on it it's basically it's almost like a duplicate but it just looks proper bookie has you know Chinese writing on it and so so I remember when dude opened it, he just accidentally, well, not accidentally, but just naturally just flicked to that page. He just kind of looked at that and then looked at me, just looked back to, back at that. There was confusion on his face. And then and then he found the normal page and then, you know, carried on. So he's had some interesting experiences with that. I think, um, yeah, for me, when I travel, it will depend on where I go, what I bring, I imagine. I don't think it really makes a difference, especially like the English or the British passport and the Portuguese passport, I suppose, are not too different. But yeah. I don't know. I will. I'll only bring one with me at a time, and I. I am like I feel. Really, you'd only ever take one. But what if there's ever a scenario where it would be handy to have the other one just in case they ask for it or something? But I can't think of that scenario because I've got. I've always like just brought my British passport with me, and it's never been a problem. Just because you can't think of that scenario doesn't mean the scenario doesn't exist. That's true. It's true. But I mean, like. It's not, it's not, I don't think it's a common thing to, or I don't think it's the common thing to have two passports. So usually I, I don't like, I would, I feel like I would have known about it by now if like, oh, you should always bring your spare passport. <laughs> spare like, passport. And, and I also, the way I see it is it's better to have a spare passport back at home if you need it. You know, like if you don't have a passport, that can get like a very sticky situation. Mm. And at yeah, least... okay, but if you just take it with you, say for whatever reason they confiscate that passport, right? You'll put your Portuguese passport for whatever reason. They don't know. You got your backup British passport, and you can still yeah. I'll be like, okay, then escape, I'm just going know? to the next airport now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that that's a scenario. So yeah, I'd say take. I have it. one more question on the passport stuff. All right. Um, when when we were at the airport a few days ago in Porto, the policeman at the gate told me I gave him my British passport, and he said, "Do you have any other documentation?" And I said, yes, I got my Portuguese passport. This is exactly like the situation <laughs> we were just talking about. Yeah. Um, and he said, it's always better to show your Portuguese passport here than to show your English passport. It can lead you into more like 
problems potentially if you have your English passport and show that over the Portuguese one. So always show your Portuguese one. And I, I thought that Portuguese was... One. <laughs> yes, so that's something I, you need to know, Saban. You need to show your Portuguese passport right. as well when you go. Um, but yeah, I, I was just quite surprised by that. I thought, well, surely... Well, I, I don't understand why it would matter personally. I, I, I don't understand. It's uh, just all geopolitical There's only one way I could think about it. And I don't know. Could it just be as simple as if you show your Portuguese passport, then there's going to be no problem surrounding visas and stuff, like how long you've stayed in the country? Whereas if you show your British one, then maybe they would want to check, like how long have you been in Portugal? Are you allowed to be in Portugal and stuff? I don't know. That, that's, that's how I made sense of it in my head. But I thought that was just kind of relevant to what we're talking about. Although there is one other thing I want to talk about in this episode. And that's just the book I was reading, and I've just finished it. And it was a beefy audiobook. It was called The Story of Human Language, and it was by, by Professor John McWhorter from America. Uh, he's a linguist. And I just wanted to say that uh, I enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> and it's an <laughs> interesting like book. And, and I thought you may actually find it fairly interesting as well. Even... Because I used to think of linguistics as the study of modern languages and like each group of languages and how they like work, I guess, in the modern context. Would that be something along the lines of what you think of linguistics as well? Repeat that again. So the topic linguistics, what it actually means. I used to think linguistics meant like maybe studying a few languages. Like if you study French, Spanish and Russian or something, then you, you're a linguist. That's how I thought about it. I didn't know about the field very well. Probably like mm. how there are some areas of medicine, like, like maybe someone who doesn't know about um, medicine too much, not knowing the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist, something like that. Mm. Um, and I didn't really know what linguistics was compared to just what studying languages was. And this book now has given me a very good understanding of the field of linguistics, which is really interesting because it's it's aimed at people who don't have a background in this, but are interest, interested in it. And so it's 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 fairly complex, but it's it's not um like too hard to follow. And so, yeah, now I realize that linguistics is more about the journey of language over time and how language, not a specific language, but how language changes. And that's fascinating. Like, for example, the sounds in a language, how they change. So I didn't know, for example, that you often drop consonants, like consonants get dropped over time in a language and how the way that languages deviate from each other over time and how you have a language and then that moves into different dialects. And then like, for example, what a creole is and a creole is like, the simplification of a language. It's like a language going backwards in a way and uh, becoming more streamlined again, which is amazing because languages get more complex over time, which I didn't know about because it becomes more nuanced. And they, they you can imagine there's like the, the root of the tree and the, the, the trunk and stuff. And then, you know, it gets more and more intricate as time passes and things become further and further away from each other as they mix with other languages and so on. So... It's like the second law of thermodynamics all over again. It is. It really is, though. It really is. It's fascinating. And he, the the author, I mean, um, I'm turning this into a book review. He annoyed me a little bit at times because I thought he was a little bit too, like, I sound really grumpy now, but a bit, a bit too jovial. Like, he was too... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know how that makes me sound, but he was too pleasant. Like, he, he, he just... I, I wish, yeah, that he was a bit less jovial and just uh, 
that that's the only negative really the actual content was brilliant and it's cool that he narrates it himself like he it was i listened to it on audio audible and um yeah he he narrated that himself and it's about 24 hours long but if you speed it up then it's a lot shorter and yeah i recommend it to you the story of human language i think you would find it interesting what's the biggest takeaway or what aspect do you think i'd find most interesting or what do you think would apply to most people in terms of what they can learn from that book? I know I asked like four questions, but I'll answer any of them. Okay. The biggest takeaway for me is that languages, there's no definition of a language and language is constantly changing, right? The English language, I mean, language, now that languages are written down, a lot of the major, there are like 6,000 languages or whatever, but the vast, vast majority of the world speak the top 20 languages. So those languages nowadays, they've been written down and they've been recorded very well, more than any other period of history. So the speed at which these languages change is much slower now, much slower. You retain the skeleton much better. But even then, language is constantly evolving and adapting to its surroundings, constantly changing. And that will always be the case. And it, it really is a reflection of the people who speak it. And I don't know, I, I think some of the rules from the book maybe aren't too useful, like some of the linguistic rules, but uh, even just understanding how a language works, uh, I know this is like a very broad thing to say, but it, it's just quite satisfying. And I think it can make you a better communicator as well. So yeah, it makes you see even the English language in a different way, because it's it's not even it's not that they he goes into the roots of words and stuff but it's more that he explains how different groups of words work and like the role that certain certain grammatical groups in a language have a role in one language and then the role changes in a different language yeah i don't know it's it's, it's kind of hard to summarize like really succinctly but i do think you would enjoy listening to it and it would be something different for you so yeah that's on Audible. I don't know if you've got any tokens. Another good thing about it is it's actually a series of lectures. So you could just listen to the lectures that interest you. I think the lectures and dialects were really interesting and Creoles. What is a Creole? What is a pidgin language? And how they work. And like, yeah, often because of the history of the world in the last few hundred years, you do have these colonial influences. They start a new society in a new part of the world. And the people who move to that part of the world have that like colonial language as the core, but then over time they adapt that language to the world around them and the people that they're with. And it's fascinating seeing a language change so quickly with a specific group of people and compare it to the original language in Europe. You know, so you've got that, for example, in certain parts of South America, like in Suriname and in the Caribbean, and you get that in some islands off of Africa, like um, Cabo Verde, which is off of West Africa. And you get that in Southeast Asia as well. So learning a bit about those uh, Creole languages was fascinating. I really enjoyed those lectures. And yeah, I don't know. That's what I really wanted to say about this book. Uh, I recommend you download it. If you have any credits, do you, do you have Audible? Yeah, I do. I do probably have, I, I think I'm like, I haven't used it in a very long time, so I must have credit. If you're still paying for a subscription, then that's great news because you get a credit every month for a, a book, any book, regardless of price. So you pay eight pounds a month, but with that credit, I, yeah, you could buy a 25 I, pound book. Yeah, I, I don't have the subscription, so uh, I just, 
I randomly get those tokens. You know when it's like you click cancel and they're like, oh, we'll give you some tokens. I'm like, yep, yeah. take those and <laughs> save them for later. Thank you very <laughs> so, much. Yeah, that, that's what I do. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's interesting. From this book, has your perspective on what languages you like the most changed in any way? Do you have like a new favorite language or a new, say, region of languages that you like the most? I'm a lot more interested in the Polynesian languages. There are not many. I think there are 12. And they. I didn't realize that they are very different in their structure to... I, I, I imagine it's quite like, that's not surprising, but the structure of them is very different. And supposedly they're very simple in a good way, because really you want a language to be simple. Why do you want it to be complicated? So apparently the grammatical systems are very nice to follow and very nice to learn. And so um, Maori, Hawaiian, Fijian, these languages now, I'm interested to learn more about them from this book because he talks about them quite a lot. There's also a language in Papua New Guinea, which is the lingua franca in Papua New Guinea. And lingua franca means just like the spoken language between different groups of people, because Papua New Guinea is an unbelievable country. It's a one of a kind. And it's a country composed of hundreds of different people groups. And because of the very complex geography and the, the rainforest and the mountain ranges, you can go a very small like distance and you'll see a completely different group of people who haven't interacted with groups around them very much ever. So the number of languages in Papua New Guinea is unbelievable. There's a crazy stat. It's, I don't want to give a number, but it's a crazy percentage of all the world languages are in Papua New Guinea. It's more than 10%. Um, yeah, I, I don't know the exact. In fact, I'm going to look it up. Screw it. I want to get the number. <laughs> 800 languages. There are 800 languages spoken in Papua New Guinea, approximately. A lot of these languages date back tens of thousands of years, and a lot of them now are very close to dying. You know, there'll be maybe a few people in their 90s who speak them, but, you know, as more people learn English, those old languages die out. But how fascinating is that? In one country, you've got, one country of about 8 million people, you've got 800 languages. And Oh, I went on a massive thought tangent here. It's whenever we go into languages, I start doing this. Um, the the lingua franca, there are levels to it, but the, the first lingua franca is called talk pisin, and that's like an English creole, talk pigeon, like talk pisin. I think that would be really interesting to learn. It would be not too hard to learn because it's based on the English language, right? And a few hundred years back, that was English, but now it's just been adapted. So yeah, that's another thing from this book that I'd be interested to try and learn myself one day, maybe, if I were to spend time in Papua New Guinea. There's a famous, like, he does a lot of different things, Jared Diamond. He wrote Guns, Germs and Steel, and very clever guy. He very inspiring in a way. He speaks Tokpisin. He's very interested in Papua New Guinea. So yeah, that was another reason for me to be interested in it, I thought. Yeah. So did this book cover anything about how new words are created in a language that is already established, but one that isn't so, like, say, systematic? Well, I, I, you can't call it English systematic, but you kind of know what I mean, where it's very easy to put words together at this point, because we have this conversation about Mandarin, right, where you can't really create new words or, like, mm. create a new symbol for, for a word or something, whereas... Even like say acronyms that you use, especially in a lot of like literature, right? There'll always be acronyms for long terminology, or it's a you put a bunch of words together to 
like make a new word or especially in the scientific fields right like microphone or something but where did even say in english where did the word hair for hair like originated uh, originate from like someone just went ah hair just made a sound and was like okay this is now the word what what is talked about in the book is how do we like define a word and that that changes in different parts of the world because a word is meant to convey a meaning but often in the word there are two or three different blocks that help to convey the meaning, if that makes sense. Like if we think of like implantation, I don't know why I thought of that word, but implantation, Asian is an action word. So that's that that changes the meaning of implant. And so you've got two blocks there. And even within implant, I don't know, you've got the im, that's probably something to do with like, you know, sounds like the word in, like, I don't know, implantation. Basically, there I can imagine there are three blocks to the word, and that in English is seen as one word. Whereas, as you just mentioned, in Mandarin, they do break them up into those like half words. So each character is like a unit of a word. So they do talk about that in the book as well, and how you can combine them differently. So in Germany, for example, you combine those words very a lot more than you do in English, and you can create massive words, which is actually just like six or seven different blocks combined into one. And in terms of the etymologies of different words, like hair, your example, uh, it does go into the fact that English is a very messy language, and it's quite funny that English is used now as like the lingua franca around the world, considering that it is like actually, in my opinion, quite a complicated language, especially to speak it well. I think it's quite difficult because the the rules are not consistent at all because of the the, the journey that English has taken. It's an amalgamation of lots of different language groups. So, yeah, I guess the reason why it is the lingua franca is just because England has been, you know, getting involved in everyone else's business for too long. So then, yeah, that kind of stuck. But um, the, the, yeah, the because, etymology. Yeah, I was just going to say. I don't recall there just being a new word I've come across, like one that's been created, like a brand new word, like that's just now been put in the dictionary kind of thing. Or not that it's been put in the dictionary, that's like not the right standard to look at it from, but just someone just made a sound and this is now just a new word that is just accepted in society. I suppose slang kind of falls into that, but these days, like even with new technologies, you're just like, okay, what do I call this, right? And you can just, but the thing is, there's usually some kind of systematic name for it. Even say like even though the technology is quite old, something like the laser, which is just actually just an acronym, which became a word. But uh, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of something else like bottle. There just hasn't been an equivalent for that in a very long time. Yeah, basically, in in terms of the construction of new words, it's based off of words that already exist usually. So I can't think of many cases where you just have to create a new word. And when that has when that happens, it's usually that something's been introduced into that country that they didn't know about before and in that case they'll just adapt the word from a different language so like i don't know things like coffee tea a lot of the spices and things which were only introduced into the european languages in like the 1500s those are usually just derived from their root you know like the country they come from for example so like mandarin coffee is cafe that's you know or, or tea is cha which is you know the same as in portuguese cha so or chai, like in Indo, like yeah, Indo Pacific yes, regions. Exactly. Or in Mandarin, like sofa is just shafa. So yeah, like they they just they that's how a new word is created in my mind at this point. It's more just it's adapted from a different language, and you will just describe what it is if you're creating a new word. So yeah, like a, a vacuum cleaner. 
That's just what it is, isn't it? That was a word that was created after the English language was made. Or washing machine, dishwasher. Vacuum. It's a weird word. Vacuum, yeah. No, I mean, if you want, we can just go through the etymologies of every word. Um, we're like, oh, that's interesting. Um, we'll probably stop recording before we do that. Yeah. But, yeah, interesting book. I do recommend it. The Story of Human Language by Professor John McWhorter. We could maybe stick it in the show notes or something if anyone's mm-hmm. interested in checking it out. And, yeah, the next book I'll be reading on Audible will be, I think it's called The Story of Modern China. So I will give you my review on that when I'm done. I usually listen to audiobooks when I'm on my way to placement. So the speed at which I get through a book is really mirrored by the uh, attendance of placement. Yeah, <laughs> and the commute length. Do you, do you still read like books on Kindle? Yes, or I'm reading something? a book at the moment that uh, I don't know if we've talked about it already. It's really good, called The Power of Geography. So what, what, what's your deciding factor as to whether you will listen to a book versus reading a book? Good question. Length is one of them and also the type of book so if it's a long book which i think would be a bit dry to sit through i find it a bit more manageable to just listen to it and especially if that's like a non-fiction topic i just sit there on the bus and we'll just listen to it but if it's like a novel where it's actually quite enjoyable to read it then i'd prefer to sit down and actually physically read it because sometimes as you know reading can be quite pleasurable and in those cases with a physical book you can go at your own pace and just enjoy it you know like if i really want to stop over a sentence and think about it i can do that so yeah i think that's generally what i do if i'm reading a novel or something i'd like to read it physically and if i'm just listening to something to learn information then i like like lectures for example in this book series that i listen to um then i'd rather probably listen to it and just speed it up a little bit and yeah pause it when i need to figure something out this book also came with a giant pdf like a, a PDF online, hundreds of pages about language as well, with like explanations of the things that he talks about. And that was really cool as well. Nice. So I, I think we covered a range of topics. It was a bit of a filler episode, just talking yeah. for the sake of talking. but Like a catch up. Yeah. It was enjoyable though. It was indeed. So I think we'll leave it there before we just carry on waffling about some other random thing. So yeah. All right. Peace. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Getting It. If you enjoyed this episode, or didn't, then feel free to leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcasts app, or on the Apple Podcasts website. We'd love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or questions about anything we discussed, so feel free to email us at thoughts at gettingit.co.uk. You can also reach us on Twitter or Instagram at gettingit underscore pod. You can find all the links in the show notes.